Jerry and Luke are brothers ages 9 and 10. And whenever Jerry happens to punch Luke, Luke always punches him back. If Jerry punches him twice, he gets two punches in return. And these boys are young, but they clearly understand retribution and payback. Carrie and Yvonne are sisters, ages 8 and 11, and whenever Carrie tattles on Yvonne, Yvonne quickly finds a reason to tattle on her sister. And these girls also understand retribution and payback. Now, none of the kids would say it this way, but, but in actuality, they're operating from a very basic sense of justice. Their attitude is, I'm going to do to you what you did to me, and that will even the score. The scales will be balanced. Justice will be served. We learn that kind of behavior when we're young, and we carry it with us into adulthood. And sometimes we express it in very foolish ways. Years ago, when I was working in the business world, one time I had to make a a sales call on a customer, and I took with me a member of my staff named Steve. And we were driving down the frenetic freeways of L.A. in his car, and all of a sudden another car went zooming past us in the other lane, and it veered in front of us and cut us off. Steve immediately sped up, jerked into the lane, sped past that other car, turned around and cut him off. And as he did so, he looked over at me with a big smile and said, I got him back. (laughs) I won't bore you with the details of the conversation we then had, but I made it clear that I wasn't very happy with his actions, which put us and others at risk. It occurs to me, though, that even though Steve behaved foolishly, he was motivated by that same basic desire for justice as the children I mentioned. It's this desire to even the score and balance the scales. We are driven by a desire for justice. Depending on how we carry it out, justice is good. It's necessary. Justice helps bring order to our world. And without justice, we have anarchy. Justice is vital to the rule of law. And yet, while God affirms and establishes justice, he does not always operate on the principle of balancing the scales. And that's because God has a bias. He has a bias toward mercy. And the prophet Micah makes this very clear in chapter 6, verse 8 of his book. I'd like us to read aloud these words that serve as the theme for this series of messages. Please read with me. What does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We're told to act justly, but to love mercy. And I don't know how we can love mercy unless we walk humbly with God because humility helps us to let go of our pride, which so often is what drives us to even the score. Humility before God helps us to relinquish our need for justice so that we, like our God, can favor mercy. And this theme of this bias toward mercy recurs throughout the scriptures. Micah's not the only one who talks about it. Jesus does as well. And in one portion of his Sermon on the Mount, he explains how we as his disciples 
can favor mercy over justice. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. This is Jesus speaking, and he, he says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is referring here to the Jewish law. And the Jewish law makes clear that justice is about balancing the scales. Jesus mentions a passage which is found several places in the Old Testament, and it's where God establishes the principle of proportional justice. If you take my eye or my tooth, I take yours. Nothing more, nothing less. The idea is that justice should be in proportion to the wrong that was done, because justice should balance the scales. And we hear that, and it makes sense to us. It seems logical. And yet, right on the heels of quoting this law, which God gave, Jesus says we're not supposed to be limited by that principle. And so, when someone wants to impose their will on us in some way, like slapping us on the cheek, we're not supposed to respond normally. Because normally, we would retaliate with force or with power or with anger. And Jesus urges us to retaliate differently by giving more than demanded. And see, that's an act of mercy. Because we are giving that other person something they don't deserve. We retaliate with mercy. So why does Jesus ask us to do this? It's because he's establishing his kingdom. And it is so important for us to realize that we do not have to wait until the next life to experience God's kingdom. If you and I do what Jesus asks, we actually help to bring about his kingdom right now for us and for others. And the kingdom of God becomes real as we increasingly embrace new ways of thinking and living, like what Jesus describes here. He offers practical examples of how we can respond to others with mercy, regardless of who holds the power in the relationship. These examples he gives are really quite interesting because in verses 38 to 41, he describes someone with power who imposes their will on us. And then in verse 42, he switches and he describes someone who thinks we have the power to help them. But in either kind of situation, Jesus wants us to view these interactions not through the lens of justice, but through the lens of mercy. I think he wants us to ask, how can I show mercy to this person in this moment based on these circumstances? And he applies that principle to a number of real-life examples. And I think the issue of going the extra mile is perhaps the prime example. In case you don't know this, the roads in ancient Israel were lined with, ancient, lined with milestones, and any Roman soldier could force any Jewish citizen to carry his pack from one mile marker to the next. It was a legalized form of humiliation. 
designed to remind the Jews that they were subservient and that the Romans were the masters. The Jewish people did not deserve to be treated like that. And the Romans did not deserve kindness in response. And yet in response to this very common occurrence, which took place daily, what could Jesus have said? What kind of advice could he have offered to his Jewish audience? He could have said, when that Roman soldier says, pick up my pack, you can punch him in the face and start a rebellion. He could have said, pick up his pack and carry it to the mile marker and set it down at the exact right spot. Give him only what he demands, no more, no less. But he doesn't do that. He says, pick up the pack. Carry it the required mile. And when you reach the mile marker, don't set it down. Volunteer to carry it another mile. You see, I think Jesus is saying to his audience, use this as an opportunity to tilt the scale toward mercy. Give that, give that soldier a glimpse of the kingdom of God. In fact, you can shock him to the depths of his being by retaliating to his arrogance, not with anger, but with merciful generosity that he does not deserve. Because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. I try to imagine myself... Uh, sitting there watching this scene. And I, and I have a sense of the, the visceral hatred that the Jews had toward the Romans with some justification. And I picture this crowd sitting and listening to Jesus, and he says, here's how I want you to treat a Roman soldier who imposes his will on you. And as he describes this, I imagine the crowd going, oh, What? Are you kidding, Jesus? Volunteer for more? And no, he's not kidding. He's not kidding because these are not idealistic platitudes. They are guidelines for a godly life. And it doesn't always initially make sense. It goes against our instincts. It's counterintuitive. It challenges us to swallow our pride and live with humility. And the fact that this is not easy to do is precisely the point. If the life of faith was easy, it would not be transformative. And Jesus invites us into life in his kingdom. And it's a life that is intended to transform us and those that we interact with. And so we can, like Jesus gives another example here of being sued. We can be sued, and we can lose, and we can give more than the settlement demands. I've told you before about my friend Larry who was sued in small claims court by a contentious neighbor named Jesse, and the judge found that my friend Larry was liable, and he ordered him to pay Jesse $1,500. Larry said, Your Honor, I really want to set things right with Jesse. So I'm going to pay him something extra for his time and trouble as well. And he paid him $2,000 instead of the $1,500. You see, Larry swallowed the wounded pride of losing because what he wanted to communicate to Jesse was that their relationship as neighbors was the most important thing. 
And in the aftermath of that, these two men who had been at loggerheads for some time eventually became friends. Because mercy, giving someone something they don't deserve, giving someone something that's more than they ask, mercy can be transformative. It's only possible, though, with humility. Not humiliation, but humility. Humility before God. The kind of humility humility where we are secure in our identity as followers of Jesus. We get our sense of self-worth from him, and therefore we do not need the victory of justice to validate ourselves. When we are secure in God's love, we can choose the way of humility and tilt the scales toward mercy. Mercy toward the two kinds of people Jesus describes here. Those who want to impose their will on us and those who want our help. There are opportunities for mercy in all kinds of circumstances if we're looking for them. And the more that we practice mercy, here's what we find, that there's a great freedom that comes with the release of this need for justice. And we extend mercy leave the justice up to God. There is tremendous freedom in that. But it's not easy. It's hard. And guess what? Jesus isn't done yet. As always with Jesus, there's more. And he's going to push the envelope a bit farther. And he's going to tell us that a disciple retaliates not just with mercy, but with love even love for an enemy. Look what Jesus says as we continue on in verse 43. You have heard it, heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Get your mind around that. That's incredible. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Anybody can love people who love them back. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus now once again describes the values of the kingdom of God and he begins by addressing another piece of the Old Testament law that unfortunately was misused by the teachers of his day. The original command from God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yet when the Pharisees taught the people, they typically left out the phrase, as you love yourself. And they added the phrase, hate your enemies. You see, rather than let the radical nature of God's command transform them, they found it much easier to transform God's command. And I understand why they did this, because we often tend to do the same thing. It is so tempting to tinker with the word of God to make it better line up with what we want and fit our preferences. And that's why we sometimes selectively quote Bible passages, picking only the verses that best defend our views. That's why we sometimes ignore Bible passages with instructions that are hard for us to embrace. 
Oh, God doesn't really mean that for me. And whenever we find ourselves doing such things, we're, we're not much different than the Pharisees because we're indicating that we're more interested in our comfort than in our transformation. And Jesus regularly gives us instructions that are uncomfortable because he is urging us to let the Holy Spirit transform us. And here again, he gives us another command that is very uncomfortable and it goes against all of our basic instincts. Yet it's a command that's based on the principle that God is love and that he loves every human being, even those who have no love for him. God loves everyone because every human being is made in his image. And so on this earth, good people and evil people all experience God's love. And one way is through what Jesus says here. He talks about the cycles of nature, the rain and the moon and the sun and, you know, the seasons that give us the harvest. Those are all things that everyone benefits from. Whether you love God or ignore God or hate God. But we all enjoy it because God loves. And because God loves, he delights to show mercy And he wants us to do the same. And so Jesus urges us to show merciful love, even towards someone that we might identify as an enemy. So what is it that makes someone an enemy? Well, I think it's a person who undermines us or attacks us or provokes conflict with us. And when a person is doing that to us, our typical response is anger or perhaps even hatred. And almost always the pursuit of justice. We want to balance the scales. And once again, Jesus urges us to give them what they do not deserve. By retaliating not with proportional justice, but with love. And even with prayer. And clearly, based on what Jesus says here, this is not praying for God's vengeance. This is not praying for our enemy and saying, go get him, God. No, it's a prayer of love. We pray for the well-being of our enemies. We pray, thankfully, for any good qualities that we might see in them. We pray for our loving God to lead them to a place where they can be at peace within themselves and at peace with him and hopefully at peace with us. And yet, as Jesus says, this is not how normal people love. We love people who are like us, and we love people who love us back, and we don't love our enemies. And so this is a radical statement, telling us that the culture in the kingdom of God is different. And as kingdom citizens, then, we don't pridefully pursue justice. Instead, we walk humbly with God so that we can extend mercy. And every time we do, we help to make the kingdom of God real in this world, in this life, right here, right now. When we extend mercy, we have to build God's kingdom. And it's hard, but it's not impossible. Jesus shows us that it's possible by the way that he lived. He took abuse that he did not deserve. 
He allowed his own creation to nail him to a cross. That is unjust. He didn't deserve it, and he had the power to stop it with a word. He let it go on because he was in pursuit of a higher goal, the goal of mercy. Mercy for you and for me. Mercy for this broken world of ours. And Jesus' invitation to every one of his disciples simply is, follow me. Follow me. Do what I do and favor mercy over justice. Jesus sums all this up with a call to be perfect, which simply means to be mature, not flawless. He doesn't expect us to be flawless. He wants us to know that a spiritually mature person does not need to physically retaliate. A spiritually mature person does not need to hate. Spiritually mature people trust God, and we find our self-esteem in God, and so as we become more mature, we can do increasingly what does not come naturally. We can lay aside our need for justice, and we can retaliate to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations with loving mercy. That truly is possible if we make the choice to walk humbly, Like I said, it's hard. And one of the hardest parts of all is this. There's no formula. There's no blueprint. There's no set of rules that tell you and I exactly how and when to be merciful. Jesus gives us here examples, not rules. And if we want to be people who extend mercy, then we need to assess our circumstances and and consult the wisdom of the Scriptures and pray and let the Holy Spirit guide us so that we will know in any given moment, what does mercy look like? You see what it means means to turn the other cheek or go the second mile, either literally or metaphorically. In any given situation, it might look different in your life than in mine. For you to turn the other cheek might might be to simply stay quiet and keep your mouth shut instead of lashing out at another person, which maybe is your instinct. Maybe for you it's aggressively pursuing reconciliation in a relationship instead of nursing your hurt and spreading gossip about the person you're angry with. Maybe it's an evening of prayer where you devote your time to pray for someone instead of an evening devoted to plotting revenge against them. If your marriage is falling apart, maybe it's to take the time to meet with a Christian therapist and focus on your own issues instead of meeting with a lawyer to go after your spouse. What does mercy look like in your life? I don't know. God does. And you and I only will know how best to respond to others with mercy if we pray and listen to the Holy Spirit not easy. It's hard. It takes faith. But if we're listening, God will guide us. And there's another part of this that's also hard. Even when we do what God asks, Jesus makes no guarantee about the results. 
Someone may slap us on the cheek, literally or metaphorically, and we may follow Jesus' advice and turn the other cheek, and we may get slapped repeatedly until we're unconscious. We might metaphorically or literally walk that second mile with someone, and they might demand a third mile or a fourth or even more. We might even extend loving mercy to an enemy who then never shows us much gratitude. Eric Honecker is a case in point. For almost 20 years, he was the leader of East Germany, a country that kept its citizens imprisoned behind the Berlin Wall. Honecker was a hated man because his leadership was marked by oppression against all kinds of people, and he particularly targeted Christians. He didn't like Christians because they worshipped God instead of the state. Honecker's wife, Margaret, was right by his side in all of this. She officially was in charge of the educational bureaucracy, and she ruled that system tyrannically, and she personally prevented many Christians from pursuing a college education because she did not want followers of Jesus to have access to the upper levels of society. Eric and Margaret Honecker were not good people. They were evil. Pastor Huey Homer and his family personally experienced the ruthlessness of the Honeckers. Members of his church and denomination were spied on by the secret police. They were sometimes arrested and sometimes sent to internment camps. In addition, the pastor had ten children, and eight of them were denied college admittance by Margaret Honecker simply because they were Christians. Well, in the late 1980s, East Germany began to fall apart, and the Berlin Wall was torn down by the people in 1989. And Concurrent with all those events... Honecker was stripped of his power. And right after losing his position, he was diagnosed with cancer and he had to go into the hospital. And when he was released, he and his wife had nowhere to go. The government had confiscated his government-provided villa. And that new government wanted to prosecute him rather than help him. And so this couple who had enjoyed prestige and power were homeless. They needed help. Who did they ask for help? They audaciously asked the church. The church they had deliberately persecuted. And Pastor Huey Homer stepped up. For about three months, the Honeckers lived with Pastor Homer and his family. And when other Christians learned about this, they were incensed. They wanted the Honeckers to get justice, not mercy. And I understand that. When you've been oppressed, you desperately need mercy, but you certainly don't want your oppressors to get mercy. And many believers cried out to Pastor Homer, how could you help this man who persecuted us? And the answer is really simple and really profound pastor took Jesus seriously when he said the words that we've read this morning he took Jesus seriously when he says give to the one who asks of you and love your enemies you see the Holmer family was committed to living in the reality of the kingdom of God not in the next life but right here right now today 
So they simply did what Jesus asked. And sadly, this merciful act, this act of love and forgiveness did not produce any meaningful change in the Hanukkahs. To the end of their lives, they were unrepentant about the evil that they had done. And it is a reminder that Jesus never guarantees that our actions will produce change in other people. He simply asks us to be faithful and to retaliate even to our enemies with mercy and love. He asks us to do that because that's what life in the kingdom of God is like. And I know this, that when we choose to favor mercy over justice and we extend mercy, giving people something that they do not deserve, oh, it will transform us. And it often, not always, but often, will transform others. Most importantly, our acts of mercy give the world a glimpse the mercy of our great God. And as I think about all of this, here's what occurs to me. If Yui Homer can mercifully invite Eric and Margaret Honecker into his home, if he can be hospitable to his literal enemies, then certainly I can tilt the scales toward mercy in my life. And if people demand things of me or harass me, I can move beyond justice and choose to retaliate with mercy. I can retaliate with love. That's what Jesus did. And more than anything, I want to follow him. So what will it take for you to extend mercy to someone who's who's harassing you? or annoying you, or making demands of you, or in some way, shape, or form, making your life miserable. How might the Holy Spirit prompt you in your life, in your relationships, in your circumstances, to favor mercy over justice? Because that is what Jesus asks of each of us. Because that's what life in the kingdom of God is like.